All content published by Your Brain on Science is solely the opinions of the authors and does not reflect the opinions of any parties affiliated with them or any additional third parties. and welcome back to another episode of Your Brain on Science. Today, you're rocking with me, Elena, as we talk about some of the critical issues in psychedelic science and what that means moving forward. So if you've been with me and Zarmin from the beginning, you've definitely heard us talk about placebo, or we've accidentally called it the placebening, as we've now coined, um, but within psychedelic science. Uh, we've also talked about issues with blinding, expectation bias, uh, which can confound the results of clinical trials. So we just wanted to talk more specifically about this clinical research process uh, with psychedelic-assisted therapy specifically, and what the quote-unquote placebo really means, and whether or not there even is this gold standard for this randomized, placebo-controlled, double-blind research model. And so to get into these topics, we've invited Dr. Natalie Gukasian from Hopkins University to talk about some of her work as a clinical psychiatrist in psychedelic research trials. So really excited um, to have you here today. So thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. So before we get into everything, I just wanted to invite you to talk a little bit about your journey to psychiatry in general, and then kind of how you got um, involved in studying psychedelics specifically. Yeah, sure. Um, I think if you told me that I was going to be a psychiatrist when I was in high school or college, I probably would have laughed at you because I didn't have an especially <laughs> high opinion of psychiatrists. Um, but that obviously changed along the way. Um, I guess I could, I was interested in psychedelics as early as, you know, like high school, college. It was something I'd read a lot about. I was reading papers that were coming out of the lab that I work in now, back when I was a college student. So these were some of the first handful of papers in the so-called second wave coming out of Roland Griffith's lab. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they showed that pretty reliably you can induce these uh, very meaningful, powerful experiences that have long lasting ability to affect change in people's lives. And I thought that was pretty dang cool. Um, in college, I was interested in public health and um, sort of illnesses related to lifestyle that seemed to be you know, affecting a lot of people in this country, things like diabetes, obesity, mm-hmm. um, which you know I was learning could be reversed or radically helped with things like behavioral change, but affecting that sort of change is not really, it was, it was really hard for a lot of people. Um, and so I was, I was excited about this as a potential treatment way back when, but I think back then it, it was sort of like a, a pipe dream to ever actually think of studying anything like this or working in it in a professional context. Yeah. Um, it was still very much taboo. And so I sort of, you know, hummed along. I was trying to decide if I was going to get a, a PhD or an MD or both. I worked in a lot of labs with, uh, you know, mice and um, at the wet lab and, uh, I sort of learned that, oh, actually, you can become an MD and do very interesting clinical research. And so I decided to go do that. Um, I had a brief detour in which I was really interested in cardiothoracic surgery, of all things. And Whoa. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And so for a while, I was going to do that um, until it uh, really dawned on me that I was um, I, I was more interested in, in, in other things, you know, my free time, I still found myself reading all about psychedelics and mental health stuff and philosophy. And by the time I had my psychiatry rotation in med school, as I think about the last rotations I had, um, I realized I had found uh, my niche. That I enjoyed the uh, people I worked with. I enjoyed the sort of work I did with patients. And, um, you know, an added bonus was that it related very obviously and clearly to um, potentially working on psychedelics, which was still a pipe dream back then. Mm-hmm. So um, I applied for uh, psychiatry residencies and part of my criteria for ranking programs was where this kind of research was going on. I ended up matching at Hopkins. And uh, so, you know, I sort of nudged my way. I got my foot into the door and then gradually forced myself into the CBCR over the course of residency uh, and stuck around for a fellowship. And now I'm um, a faculty member there and, and medical director. 
that's cool i i always like talking to people who are still relatively like you know young in the field um who Mm -hmm. have recently completed like residencies and gotten to these positions like the ones that you're in now because when same with when i like first started still it was very taboo to talk about it when i was an undergrad so i was like hearing the perspective of like how people actually got to where they're trying to go um i think it's inspiring for some of our listeners who want to do the same thing so and even you know like as as recently as in residency you know i was we were still sort of dissuaded from doing this kind of research even with you know the results that had come out of uh dr griffiths and dr johnson's and barrett's and garcia romeo's labs so uh it's really only recently that there's really been this big sea change and that's very exciting to see yeah definitely and and it's going to be helpful for more research to come out so yeah Yeah, pretty cool um so i want to get into uh something that you recently wrote so zarmin and i uh, talked a little bit about the at the end of our episode on harm reduction about psychotherapy and some of the like common factors across psychiatry that are also important in this psychedelic context so mm-hmm. i know you and a colleague wrote a paper talking about some of those factors so do you want to describe a couple of them like yeah sure i mean maybe i could like frame it a little first so yeah you know we sure. have we have probably I don't know if it's a thousand kinds of different psychotherapy, but certainly hundreds of different kinds of psychotherapy out in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of been the case for a long time. And we as a field have failed to reach consensus about what actually is the most effective kind of psychotherapy. Um, and part of that, re- the reason for that is that many of these psychotherapies seem to be effective, at least to a moderate degree, which is weird, right? Because they all... Um, posit a different reason for why they ought to work. You know, the, the Freudian folks have their set of explanations. The CBT folks have another. Mm-hmm. They're always at odds with one another. And yet um, both seem to be effective. And it's actually very challenging to show that one kind of therapy is superior to another. Um, and so this has been the case for a long time, as early as you know the 1930s. This was written about um, this guy, Rosenzweig, wrote back in like 1936 that you know, he, he was sort of positing that, like, maybe there's actually uh, the things that are driving the efficacy of psychotherapy are not the the, the sort of explanatory models or the bells and whistles mm-hmm. of any given therapy, but the things that are common to different kinds of therapies. And this this idea was expanded on by a guy named Jerome Frank, who was here at Hopkins, um, wrote a book back in the 60s called Persuasion and Healing, which uh, I read as a resident, and I recommend to most people who are interested in psychiatry or mental health. Um, and he, he's, he expanded on this idea, the so-called common factors. He basically did this big survey of all different kinds of healing traditions. And those included um, not just what we think of as regular, you know, Western psychotherapy, but also uh, religious, psycho-spiritual sorts of healing traditions. So things that, you know, are still practiced today. And, um, some communities around the world and seem to have some kind of benefit for people who are suffering. Um, And he came up with basically four factors that he thought were common to all these kinds of healing traditions, psychotherapy and all this religio-magical stuff. Um, The first being the therapeutic relationship. Uh, Mm -hmm. so, So some kind of relationship that exists between someone who is seeking help and someone who's societally sanctioned as a healer of some kind. Um, a healing setting. So usually this kind of thing between the, uh, this relationship occurs in some kind of special, uh, specially sanctioned place that might have, you know, some connotations of being healing in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, usually there's some kind of rationale or um, conceptual scheme or sometimes like a myth that's posed as the reason for why this works. And this has to be believed by both the person who's doing it and the person who's on the other end of the uh, treatment. And finally, there's the, the ritual or the actual thing that goes down between the sufferer and the person who is offering help. Okay. Um, yeah. And so like in our paper, we just sort of laid out that, you know, there's um, this is, clearly present in psychedelic assisted treatment, even when, you know, the psychotherapy portion is downplayed or, or, you know, they describe it as just basic support. 
um, even when it's just meeting, you know, with the guides for a handful of times, if there's, if there's a relationship formed, if there's, you know, some disclosure, if there's some vulnerability on the part of the person who's seeking treatment, um, I think that would generally count as entering in this kind of therapeutic relationship. And, and all these factors on their own um, have been demonstrated to have like a pretty decent effect size uh, with respect to actually affecting change in different kinds of therapies. And so we basically argue that this is sort of like, um, you can't really extract this from what we call psychedelic assisted treatment, even when the intervention that involves a human is really minimal. Mm -hmm. um, and it might be driving a lot of the improvement that we see. It's probably not driving all of the improvement. I think we have ample evidence to suggest that there really is some biological stuff that goes on with psychedelics. Um, but teasing apart those things is hard. Um, but it's also an opportunity, right? Because there's a lot of literature about like, okay, well, what are those contextual factors or set and setting factors that make the difference? Like, well, we already have many decades of research to show us that, well, these are actually the factors that make a difference in any kind <laughs> right. of healing, uh, healing ritual that, that goes down. Yeah. And I, I like what you said about um, just how having a person there, right, can make a difference. And that's been shown like across therapy in general, because a lot of like, even yeah. the studies without, you know, a therapy, like a hard therapy component, you're still meeting with the same people several times, um, which can definitely impact like that rapport. Mm -hmm. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, you know, it's a uh... Basically, you know, there's a, there's a part of persuasion and healing where Frank writes about um, part of the, the, the ritual and let's say regular psychotherapy being this kind of intense emotional experience that occurs between the therapist and the, and the client or the patient, right? In which the, the patient has some opportunity to face this kind of big challenge, be it just like, you know, coming to terms with feelings that they've been suppressing or, you know, some sort of traumatic experience that they've um, had a hard time talking about. Um, and in, you know, the psychedelic sort of therapy, the big emotional experiences may be like the most potent one that I've seen yet, right? It's, it's like yeah. what people rate as among the most meaningful experiences of their lives. So you can imagine how it might make for an especially uh, powerful um, effect. Yeah. So I guess knowing that, you know, these are been shown, these factors have been shown across different therapy types in psychedelic therapy and non-psychedelic therapy. Do you think that there is differences within like the therapeutic relationships or the like setting? Is it different in psychedelics? I guess you just mentioned like how maybe that experience is increased, but do you think there's any mm -hmm. other differences between that and just normal non-psychedelic psychotherapy um i mean i think there are a few differences at the end of the day it boils down to like well these are probably the sorts of mechanisms at play but you know some uh some ones that come to mind are the the speed with which um participants or patients and the study team or therapists form rapport right so you know i can i compare it to what happens in my regular clinical practice right where i see patients you know usually for maybe an hour, an hour and a half at first, and then we follow up once a month for like 30 minutes or something. Um, in the studies that I've been a facilitator for involving psilocybin, we meet for six to eight hours. Usually it was done for some studies. It was like three or four hour blocks, like for the mm -hmm. whole afternoon or something. Um, and there's two therapists, right? It's not just one therapist. And so it's a, it's a pretty, um, it's, it's a sort of setting that, that makes for uh it sort of lowers the bar, I guess, in some cases for disclosure, at least it's an anecdotal or an observation that I've made, right? That we've had folks sit with us and they've been in therapy for years and they're like, oh, I've never even told that to my therapist. Wow. Um, so, you know, I, I do think there is something different about the the kind of relationship that's formed in, in, the, in, the, in this typical structure that, that we've used at like Hopkins, for example, whether that structure is going to survive outside of the laboratory with, you know, how insurance reimbursement works and all that that's not right. really clear to me but um that's a, whole and a lot of these things thing. are yeah that's what yeah if you want to have me back for another <laughs> talk <laughs> yeah. about insurance and payers and stuff I, i'm still making my way and understanding all that but uh working on it i mean in terms of the other um the other factors you know i think the a place that's interesting is this whole rationale or conceptual schema or myth about like what the hell is actually going on 
yeah. French, about how psychedelics work, right? Where I think a lot of people might have very different ideas about what makes this kind of treatment effective. And because of the nature of the uh, psychedelic experience, it's, it really does become uh, open for all sorts of different interpretations, right? So for someone who's like a diehard reductionist materialist sort of person doesn't even believe in spirituality you know there's a whole range of evidence now that shows that psychedelics do all these interesting things to your brain they might affect neuroplasticity they might um, be potently anti-inflammatory they might do all sorts of interesting things and there's great evidence with all sorts of interesting data and figures to look at if you're someone who's really spiritual, well, there's a whole literature on mystical experiences and, uh, you know, all sorts of interesting entity encounters and all, you know, all manner of, of things that can come up. Uh, or, you know, you maybe you'll find some very insightful kind of experience under psychedelics where you'll gain insight about some issue you've been having or relationship problem. And uh, so it, it, because of the, I think it's sort of a versatile uh Sort of intervention that it can be interpreted in any number of ways and maybe that's part of what makes it so potent is that you know a lot of people can throw whatever sort of interpretation they want on it and it still seems to fit i think that's one yeah. of the most interesting things about like this i guess the rationale behind why it's working is that it seems to just highlight the importance of how the individual experience plays just a huge role in mm-hmm. their, the outcome right so i just think that's fascinating mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're in this like era of so-called, you know, personalized medicine or trying to get that off the ground. And mm-hmm. <clears throat> and yeah, maybe this is an especially uh, versatile kind of intervention that, that can be used in that way. Yeah. Where um, do you fall on the uh, why is it working question? Why is it working? The eternal question. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I'm also curious to hear what you think, but uh, having... You know, the, the, I think the big, the, the the biggest question is whether you need the subjective experience at all, right? There's a big right. ongoing debate about is the mystical stuff, all the you know lovely imagery and somatic sorts of experiences and whatever else you might have with psychedelics, is that just a like a useless epiphenomena set of epiphenomena that don't really actually matter? It's just sort of how it feels when your brain is doing the thing that leads to it getting better. Um, or is it really super valuable as people who go through the intervention would tell you, right? Many people, mm-hmm. there's a lot of like qualitative interviews and things like that and uh, questionnaire measures where people say, you know, this is among the most meaningful things that's ever happened to me on par with like the birth of a child or the, the death of a parent or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, I, I think that that is hard to discount for me, right? Because a lot of people, when you ask them down the road, like, you know, what was valuable to you in that experience? Like, and if you had to explain why you think you're better, um, a, a lot of people will think back to some kind of insight they had or some some part of this direct experience that they, that they were able to achieve. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, there are studies planned as far as I'm not actually sure if they've been started yet but uh i think up in wisconsin they're trying to get some study going where they're gonna try to induce uh retrograde amnesia in people with benzodiazepines so that they don't remember (laughs) their psychedelic experience (laughs) Uh, and see what happens yeah yeah i wonder how the irb approval for that one is gonna go uh i don't know man (laughs) (laughs) but but i think they might have like they might have started i'm not even okay yeah i'll have to look at look up um um but 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 another thing, I mean, like, so we're running a study right now with people who have early stage Alzheimer's and uh, mild cognitive impairment at Hopkins. It's a study run by Dr. Um, Al Garcia Romeo, and we've we've run a you know a number of subjects there. Um, and a very interesting feature has been that many people actually don't remember their experience as soon as like the next day, and so we actually have kind of a natural <laughs> amnesia <That's interesting>. uh, <laughs> process built in. I think I'm like honestly in the middle because I I'm a you know preclinical neuropharmacologist right so mm-hmm. I I do have some of that like you know materialistic like well I've seen in the brain what is happening like our labs played a role in like a lot of the evidence with psychedelics mm-hmm. um but I do also like respect people like 
the the things that people are saying like i i think that it is also highly important about the experience that somebody's having so i'm kind of like a why not both person <laughs> like yeah. i don't think it i don't think anything's ever one or the other like black and white i mean especially in science we do all these studies in a system in like the preclinical world so having taking that into an actual person it's like there's so many other factors that play a role that I don't think it's one or the other yeah humans can be hard to work with hard to pin (laughs) down sometimes too going into like the the ritual of the 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 psychotherapy component and I know um so me and Zarmin have kind of talked about ritual and like the going into these studies or going into the therapeutic process um and I think we mentioned it in our microdosing study how having the routine behind like these regimens um specifically with microdosing or having the routine of going through these clinical trials can produce outcomes mm-hmm. maybe because of the commitment of the participant so do you have any thoughts on that and um do you think there are like potential concerns about the influences of like that ritual on results or on participants yeah i mean and the like i'd say probably the ritual if we call it that varies um like i was kind of surprised when i arrived at uh what is now the center as a i was a resident when i first got involved and i and i sat in my first session i was co-guiding with mary casamano and it was very different from (laughs) anything that i'd done in residency (laughs) Uh, mainly in that, uh, you know, as a psychiatrist, especially early in one's career, you're you're taught to really limit things like self-disclosure and touch, um, because it, you know, in, in many cases, especially if you're a beginner, um, that can get in the way or sometimes just like complicate things with with patients right because it's like the therapy process right is a very intimate one it can sometimes be a slippery slope between something that seems harmless or or something that a person does to help somebody versus something that can become like really problematic but be, but but the psychedelic sort of a, a assisted therapy approach especially the one used at the center um was was very different right because it involves like rapid rapport building and um, and there was pretty, um, I, like, I, you know, I, I sort of observed routine self-disclosure about, you know, what the, uh, not, not like about like substance use or anything, but just sort of about like, you know, the personal life of, of the, mm-hmm. of a person who's guiding and not everybody's like this, you know, everyone's got a little bit of a different thing, but so it's, uh, I mean, yeah. And so like, you know, among the other things I thought was like really things that were very clearly like in the realm of ritual, right? Where, you know, when patients or participants are given the actual capsule, it's given to them in this little uh, chalice. It's this, it's a copal, like an incense burner that was like gifted to the center. And we like, you know, we sit and before we give it to them, we do like a little, a little spiel about like, oh gosh, like look how far you've come. We've, you know, we've worked together so well and we're here now and what a great opportunity for you and like whatever needs to happen today is going to happen and we're going to be right here mm-hmm. um you know there's a rose that's put in the room that's a tradition that was carried forward from the spring grove like state psychiatric hospital where uh, bill richards worked back in the 70s he was someone who mm-hmm. helped start up the program at hopkins when it first got off the ground and so we still have like a rose in the room for every session, pretty much depends on the study, but uh, it's pretty consistent for you know the, for our our group. And so they're like little things like that, and you know just the fact that it's like if you talk about like setting, right? You know, setting I think can be part of the the ritual sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's Hopkins, right? And it does have this. It's like in the news all the time, and it's like the place where this sort of stuff was. This kind of research kind of got started back up in the early two thousands, and all these you know very experienced guides are there and they're going to do a great job. Right. So there's like that kind of stuff that's just sort of floating in the air when participants. Yeah. Come. I think it has to have some kind of effect. I think you can't really get away with that uh, without it having some sort of influence on, on folks in the, you know, and you can, and you just think about it on a societal level, like right now, you know, maybe we used to be more of like a religious society and some, you know, the biggest source of power might have been the church. But right now, I think we're sort of firmly out of that territory. And we're in a place where we, not that we worship science, but like, we kind of do worship at the altar of science. <laughs> we walk around with like, tiny, super fast computers connected to high speed internet all the time. And, you know, we have mm-hmm. a lot of 
wonderful technology and medicine that's um, come to us as a result of this sort of scientific process. Um, and, and, and that, that does carry some, some weight and some power. Um, so I, I think that probably has some, some sort of influence on, on folks when they come and do this sort of thing. And there's like a value put on like some of these results that we're seeing. Right. And so when participants or just the news articles or John Oliver was on talking about psychedelic assisted therapy. So just mm-hmm. like we put a lot of value in the media and in the technology and, and like, almost have a trust for the people who are bringing us the information right so i think that definitely yeah. plays, plays a part yeah and there's like all good or bad yeah and, you know, and, and right now i'd say most of the news coverage is, is pretty good it wasn't always that way but yeah um i figure that that has to be part of a, a pretty big part of set and setting and i mean we also kind of saw a similar sort of thing in the early days of antidepressants actually yeah when the you know the earlier studies came out with things like fluoxetine and other antidepressants they had huge effect sizes um and over the years that kind of leveled out to what we see now which is a pretty moderate puny effect size um but one that still merits you know mass prescribing of, of this i think it probably won't be as significant for um stuff like psilocybin but we've already seen it like you know as these larger studies are published and uh, using samples that are a little bit more representative, like the, the compass treatment resistant depression sample. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A couple hundred people, they have tried a bunch of medication, they've been ill for quite a long time, and the effect sizes we're seeing there are they're not not really quite as good as what we saw in the smaller studies using folks who are a little bit more uh, straightforward, I guess, in terms of their mental health history. Do you mind maybe talking about um kind of the risks to benefits of like this therapy because i know you mentioned that a little bit in your commentary about um that compass study so yeah i mean so i think there were two main things that commentary brought up and so one was addressing what a lot of people were talking about as that data came out which was that there were you know out of I think 230-ish people um, that they ran, they had at least three instances of um, suicidal behavior among participants, meaning some kind of uh, planned suicide attempt or aborted suicide attempt uh, or Mm -hmm. self-injurious behavior of some sort. And all of those instances occurred actually in folks receiving a high dose of psilocybin. So people were randomized to either receive a single 25 milligram, 10 milligram, or one milligram dose. Mm-hmm. Um, and the one milligram dose was kind of a placebo dose, basically. Um, and so it's, you know, maybe it's random that everybody who had that kind of outcome was in the high dose group, but I don't think we can just ignore that. And I think we have to pay attention to that, right? That there might be some um, risk that we still don't really understand how this kind of treatment works fully. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we, as we, you know, veer into more complex clinical populations, I think we're likely to potentially see um, higher risk for, for those folks that, you know, this, this maybe for some people, it could actually not be especially helpful. And for some, maybe it, it makes them worse, right? We don't really we don't really know. The only thing that will help us answer that is more data, and that takes time and a lot of resources. Right. Um, I yeah. will say, like, when this study came out, I was pleasantly, I guess, surprised of the, like, clear reporting on the the adverse events and on the suicide um, risk because yeah. there's, been, you know, some stuff I'm sure you've seen, like, brought up through other groups and through different podcasts about some of these risks and some of these negative um, effects on people Mm -hmm. that were, well, what seemed to be ignored. So I thought that was really great that this study actually reported and that people are talking about it now. Like you published this commentary. It's, it's more of a conversation now that we need to, to focus. um, Right. On. So, yeah. Yeah. I think they have to kind of publish and be, be clear about that sort of thing. I don't think, you know, I think it was New England Journal and get, let them get away with it. If they if they did it, you know, and like and people, and it's super important to understand right, what the real what the real risks are, and um, we do need to figure out like how to identify who those very high risk people are. I think in this case, actually, it, all three of those people had um, 
what is one of the the biggest contributors to risk, which is past um, past suicidal behavior of some sort, so self injurious behavior or mm-hmm. aborted attempts or failed attempts or something like that. Yeah, so maybe considering you know better screening or like more specific screening or something. I don't know <laughs> when yeah. we I guess do this. Um, yeah, so I guess staying just on here real quick before we switch back over to something else. Um, I wanted to know your opinion about, you know, potentially increased like integration following psychedelic administration, especially with these potentially at risk um, populations. Do you think that more support would be helpful or do you think there's a better way to support non-responding participants? Yeah, I mean, we don't know. That's a short answer. Um, In the COMPASS study, I think to date, if you look at all the studies that have been published, like the bigger studies published since the early 2000s, the COMPASS group had sort of like the lowest level of support relative to those. I think it was maybe like, uh, you know, maybe several hours of prep. And then they had, I believe, two follow-up sessions after Mm -hmm. a single dose, right? And so this, this, the study here was just a single dose. We don't really know if repeated dosing would have been helpful for, for this sample. Um, and we don't know whether additional psychotherapeutic support would have been helpful. Um, and, and it's sort of hard to compare it to other studies that were like single site, like, you know, like an hour yeah. study where we also didn't have a treatment resistant sample um, or open label sort of a drug administration. That's sort of a whole different kind of story. Yeah. Um, so we, we don't know. And I think that's a really important question and one that um, we need a little bit better research on. I think some folks are already working on it out in um, Minnesota, maybe. I think Dr. Nielsen is trying to run an imaging study to, to better quantify, you know, what we sometimes call this potential window of opportunity that arises after um, psilocybin administration or other psychedelics, right, where you, like, theoretically would have some some potential neuroplasticity that could be um, induced yeah. right? and how do you capitalize on that we don't really know maybe the ideal thing is you know not just like an hour of psychotherapy the next day but like putting someone in a intensive outpatient program or even like a you know a retreat kind of setting or mm-hmm. residential sort of treatment and maybe some people need that more than others right so my um my main work as a postdoc was the study in folks with anorexia nervosa. Um, and that's a medically complex group. They can have a lot of co-occurring mental health issues apart from the anorexia. Many of them have like kind of complicated home situations or interpersonal relationships with, with people in their lives, right? And so for them, maybe removing them from that kind of environment and placing them in there. Mm-hmm a situation in which they have some really robust support in the in the things that matter right so like creating psychological safety and making sure that they're getting adequate nutritional support and things like that right um might be might be the thing that really makes or breaks it right so i think that was, that was like actually one of the conclusions from doing this anorexia study which we're um working on the data for right now uh you know is that maybe this is an intervention that's best for people who are either emerging from something like residential treatment and really, you know, they've already got all the, you know, skills under their belt and they've sort of made it through the really dangerous period of, of being ill with anorexia. Yeah. Or to be like embedded within some kind of residential or inpatient kind of treatment or intensive outpatient partial hospital kind of situation. So I think it, it might differ depending on what indication and, and what the characteristics of the folks we're treating are. You gave a really uh, good talk during a panel situation about placebo, and it was really interesting how you like defined it in different ways and kind of distinguished the effect from the placebo itself. Uh, so I was wondering if you could give like a mini spiel about it. Yeah. All right. You'll get a spiel. You asked for a spiel, you get a spiel. Sure. Um, <laughs> so I think, you know, that this question um, pertains to the criticism that you hear a lot about psychedelic-assisted therapy, like, you know, well, maybe it's just placebo, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and how we define placebo for that matters, right? Because what a placebo actually is, it refers to the the intervention that is usually a physical intervention that seems to induce some kind of effect in people by something totally unrelated to any physical property, 
of, of said placebo or intervention, right? So like a sugar pill, right? Mm-hmm. You wouldn't expect it to have any actual antimicrobial properties, but lo and behold, some people who take a sugar pill seem to get better from their infection faster. Um, and so people say like, well, is it just placebo that people believe that psychedelics are better? Um, and the thing that makes it hard to answer that question is going back to this whole common factors thing, right? That wrapped up in this whole psychedelic assisted therapy intervention is this huge, very powerful psycho psychotherapy intervention, right? And, mm-hmm. and what is psychotherapy, right? It's, it's something that doesn't actually have any physical properties and affects change by something it doesn't have any physical properties. It affects change by things that are by definition, non-physical. So things like nonverbal communication or verbal communication, mm-hmm. um, which is a little confusing, right? Because then, you know, is it, is it, is it, ha- is it inducing some kind of effect by anything other than a placebo effect, right? So a placebo effect is what actually happens in the person as a result of taking a placebo. And so you take a placebo and an effect happens in your body or let's say you get psychotherapy and lo and behold, you also get an effect and it can look kind of similar, right? And so does that mean that psychotherapy and placebo are equivalent? Um, mm-hmm. Well, by definition, like, I guess you would say that, right? <laughs> because <they're, laughs> you're affecting some kind of change by something that's not a physical property and it's some kind of, you know, it's magically it seems to somehow work. Um so so that's what the problem is right and and placebo carries a pretty negative connotation in our society that it's just sort of like you know this this nonsense thing that only works because people are foolhardy and believe in stuff that could make them better and they're just it's just wishful thinking mm-hmm. um and that's due to like the the, the medical roots of, of placebo um and so all this is to say that it's probably actually not at all helpful to think of psychotherapy as a placebo um, but rather as sort of, sort of the active psychological ingredients that are uh, necessary, but maybe not always adequate by themselves for, for, for psychotherapy to work. But again, yes. this is what we're saying is kind of, it's sort of inseparable from the psychedelic intervention because it's, it's, it's sort of touted to be necessary for safety, right? To have all this right. extra therapeutic support. Yeah. It's like, reminds me of, there's like a saying, in our lab um and with a lot of studies that is it's necessary but not sufficient so yeah yeah necessary but not sufficient good way active psychological ingredients and, and not just placebo so th- so is psilocybin affecting some kind of effect through a placebo effect um maybe but it's a super hard question to answer because of all the psychotherapy wrapped up into mm-hmm. it yeah so how does this kind of placebining <laughs> influence the designing of clinical trials? Um, well, so far it seems not to have much of an effect because all the trials that are published seem to just, just keep do the going. same thing over and over. Yeah. yeah. Um, I guess, is there is, a special you know, concern for like the, the psychedelics? Like, do you think there's like a way to like tweak it? <laughs> um, to tweak it? I don't know, right? I mean, the whole, the problem boils, boils down to the fact that like everybody can tell like yeah. basically everybody gets unblinded um, study staff and participants, everybody kind of knows what they get. And when you know what you get, you draw conclusions and you know, mm-hmm. think all sorts of things about it. And that can actually change how you respond. Um, and these, these are things that happen like on a conscious level and also on, not on a conscious level between like, you know, communication between a, a patient and a, and a study staff member. Um, and for psychedelics, it's, it's, it's bad, right? Because like, if you could tell what you got, you could tell what you got. <laughs> and if <Yep. laughs> you believe you didn't get um, the active drug, like you can become super disappointed and demoralized, right? You've just invested hours and hours doing this whole stupid trial, um, taking days off work, and you've maybe failed a bunch of other kinds of treatments, you're really hoping for some kind of benefit. And lo and behold, like you got you got into the situation where you got what you think was like nothing Um, and one you know one participant that I worked with in a study said to me something like you know you're not you're not really testing the difference between psilocybin and placebo you're testing the difference between psilocybin and disappointment right so disappointment is not harmless like that could actually make people feel worse Um, and so when you don't have an adequate control 
what's probably happening is there's an inflation of, of that effect size that we measure when you're comparing it to this control condition, right? Because the, the control group might actually be worse than it would have otherwise um, at those later follow-up time points. Um, yeah. Dr. Cameron from the Olson lab published a little commentary about designing these trials and how it might be like useful to have like a three tier like design where you have someone get you know high dose no dose low dose like randomized and how that you could mm-hmm. see like how each like full blown experience no experience and then a mid potential experience like a potential mid experience would influence like those kind of like in betweens because I feel like looking at the in between yeah. is like super important but how do you get at that right yeah I mean that was the other part of the my compass commentary is that like that was a huge missed opportunity in that study because that's exactly what they did. They had, they compared one milligrams, uh, one milligram, 10 Mm -hmm. milligrams and 25 milligrams, and they didn't collect any kind of data on blinding integrity. And that would have been super helpful because there was actually a clear difference in the effect between the 25 milligram Mm -hmm. dose and the 10 milligram dose. And so maybe the 10 milligram dose was, was good enough to fool people right into thinking that they got the high dose, but we just like don't know. Yeah, I thought that was interesting that they didn't even, like, collect it. Like, that seems like such a, like, missed opportunity that when every other study collects unblinding data for the most part, that they just were like, no, we don't know. We don't need to know. Right. And it would have been very easy to do that. And so it sort of begs the question about why and probably is that, you know, the, the sponsor of the study is not especially incentivized to like collect Actually or reveal any out. data, <laughs> right? Yeah. That would suggest that maybe there's uh, less efficacy than than they want mm-hmm. you to to think. Yeah, they just want to hurry up <clears throat> with their approval and move on. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. So we talked a little bit about the the unblinding and how you know this can just change. You know the the results and just the interpretation of the results. So is there like pros and cons of using say like an active comparator, like dextra promo- can never say that word, like DXM, diphenhydramine <laughs> mm-hmm. or like niacin versus like using a lower inactive dose comparator? Yeah, well, those are pretty different interventions. That's I'd sort of, I'd probably put diphenhydramine uh, or niacin in the, closer to the category of like an inactive dose okay. right because maybe you know with niacin you might like have a little bit of flushing in the beginning or a little bit of like weird you know stomach sensations or something but after a little while it kind of goes away and it sort okay. of doesn't last like four to six hours for most people um but but I, this is like a a big important question is like can we find a convincing comparison condition for something like psilocybin that works by a totally different mechanism and if so that would actually be a super interesting comparison condition to look at right because it sort of tests the the hypothesis about um what is what what part of someone's therapeutic benefit comes from the subject of experience versus some biological thing that's happening, right? So mm-hmm. dexamethorphan has been one idea that's tossed around. Other some people say like high dose cannabis might be interesting to do. Um, the problem is that like a some of those treatments might have some biologically based benefit for things like depression. Right? So dexamethorphan is actually um, known to have some improvement for for, for depression by itself. <laughs> Yeah, because um, it's similar to ketamine, so. Yeah, exactly, and yeah. you know there, there's there are DXM studies out there specifically for for depression, um, and the other thing is that like even if they're not biologically helpful, if you go back to the the common factors idea, where it says that maybe like all maybe the the big part of the healing comes from this big emotional. Uh, mm-hmm trial that people go through and whether that comes from psilocybin or thc or dextromethorphan maybe that actually doesn't even matter um, right. and i would and i would i would predict that probably even for something like high dose thc um we might see some some decent benefit for, in terms of depression for people um because of this common factors sort of phenomenon going on yeah that makes sense so what about like how um so we'll just stick with the compass for an example, I guess. Um, but how they use like a one mg per kg as like their 
inactive dose comparator? Do you think that has more benefit to using something like that, like the same drug with the lower dose? Or do you think using something like one of these other comparators would be not DXF, but maybe one of the lesser? Yeah. Um, I, w- I would put it on the on the same level as just like true placebo. I think most people wouldn't be able to feel one milligram as being especially different. The, the benefit of the of having one milligram is that you get to say to people uh, during a consent process that like you're going to get a dose of psilocybin. Yeah, you're just not going to know what what dose it is. Um, and so maybe that sort of puts some kind of expectancy in that person's. Uh, worldview or whatever or sort of you know mindset going into the experience um but beyond that i don't know that the actual subjective effects that people rate would really be convincing enough to make it any different from a true placebo fair enough um there was a recent paper that came out um i think it was the preller paper that they use uh just psychotherapy with no drug and then um mm-hmm. the psychotherapy with a psychedelic as a comparator do you have mm-hmm. any thoughts on that? Did you did you read that paper? I haven't read that paper. I think I might have heard about this, but I need to I need to go go and look at it. Uh, we have an episode an interesting... on it. So. <laughs> oh, you do. Yeah. Wait, so, what did they? What was the deal there? How did that go for that? Um. So basically, they found that the psychedelic therapy group still had improvements compared to the psychotherapy group that didn't get psychedelics but there was a marked improvement still within that group so kind of like along the same lines as some of these other studies where you're like well we still don't know but we we did something different and so it was it was interesting and they i think with like a middle dose it wasn't anything high it wasn't anything crazy low um it was a good it was a well-done study well maybe uh, that there's a benefit just because it's like less deceptive and there's no like sitting around and being anxious for the participant and waiting to figure out like is it or isn't it right and so yeah. maybe it is superior to to that placebo or true placebo or like very low dose condition uh, but i'll have to take a look at that yeah. yeah i'd like to see more studies i think with that kind of design because i think it mm-hmm. it does kind of get into like you know the factors influencing kind of the results and how psychedelics mm-hmm. can maybe amplify the already positive factors in therapy yeah Um, we'll see um so i guess i just have one kind of final question for you um is there a gold standard to these clinical trial designs and how do you think moving forward and in your perfect world um can studies kind of tackle some of these issues gosh million dollar question (laughs) I know. I will, you know, it's just an opinion. No, no uh, pressure here. Yeah. Um, I would really like to see uh, a study with a convincing comparison condition. I think that could tell us a whole lot. Um, whether that kind of study would be done by a, a sponsor of one of these, you know, bigger trials. Like, I don't know that they would really be incentivized to do that, right? Because that might reveal a major concern about their product. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think probably if that happens, that's going to have to be publicly or philanthropically funded. Um, but I think, I think that has to, I think that has to happen if we're really talking about, you know, trying to approximate what we call our gold standard design, the randomized placebo controlled design. Um, we have to have something that, that actually fools people. I don't know that it's really worthwhile to, to do, you know, the other thing we had mentioned, which was like, knock people out or induce amnesia about the experience um, so they don't remember what they got. Uh, That just seems like going above and beyond and maybe actually, like, I I also don't know enough about how some of those drugs that they might use um, might affect the ability of psychedelics to do their thing, right? So I don't know if you, like, put somebody under the influence of, like, propofol, does that actually just prevent any kind of yeah. Um, well, I know, I know, like people take benzos when they're having an intense trip to like reduce mm-hmm. it, and there's you know some inhibition, excitation, like balance going on when you add mm-hmm. a cocktail, and so it'd be interesting to see how they would control for something like that. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, I don't, and I think I think what they would do is actually give the benzo sometime after the okay the psychedelic, so it, it wouldn't even be co administration. But I don't know. So. 
So yeah, I think that seems like a little over the top and it seems dangerous to actually put yeah. people through that kind of thing. Um, you know, another super interesting thing is going to be sort of the, the novel compounds that people are coming up with, the so-called non-psychedelic psychedelics. I don't know if that's ever actually going to be a real thing because it seems like even the compounds that are being touted as uh, so-called non-psychedelic might have some psychoactive effects that, that are mm -hmm. noticeable. Yeah. Um, so at the end of the day, um, I'm not totally sure. I think another important kind of study is just going to be like a real comparative efficacy study. Mm -hmm. um, sort of like what Carhart Harris and colleagues did with their escitalopram versus psilocybin study, but without the, but, 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 real, but a true comparative efficacy study, meaning that like not everybody's going to get like, you know, some ceremony with like half yeah. of the people getting a sham psilocybin session, truly just like some people get psychedelic assisted therapy, some people get standard of care um, and, and see what happens. Uh, so that would be a really important study and that can help us uh, understand a lot. And, you know, if, if the data are favorable, then, then it would make it um, hopefully easier or more easy to justify payers or insurance companies actually covering these kinds of services. If not, then I think then, then maybe we find out that psychedelics are not as great as we have all touted them to be. Yeah, definitely. I'm I'm excited to hopefully see in the future some more of those um, standard of care comparison studies. I think it needs to be replicated. So mm -hmm. fingers crossed that's going to come come soon. <laughs> yeah. But thank you so much uh, for coming on the podcast with me. I really appreciate all of your thoughtful discourse on these topics. And I'm sure that our listeners do, too. Yeah, my pleasure. It was fun. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, of course. So thanks again. Uh, and thank you to our listeners for tuning into another episode of Your Brain on Science. And remember to like, share, subscribe, and tune in next week for another psychedelic theory episode.